You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. That was very encouraging, wasn't it? It is good to be with you, Vine family. How are you? We're going to try that again. Vine family, how are you? Good. Yeah, that's a little better. Even if it was strained, by the end, we'll get there. My name is Ben uh, Hacker. I'm the lead pastor of Eastside Church, um, Vine's younger church plant. And uh, it's good to be back here this morning, see a lot of faces that I recognize from our time spent here and a lot I don't, uh, which is fantastic. Um, And so I am just encouraged uh, to be here with you this morning. Um, My family and I have been in Madison since uh, right around February of 2016, uh, and so we're on staff at uh, a church on the east side and then came to help plant Eastside Church in 2018, uh, launching in 2019. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's great that we do this. I love being a part of Madison Multiply. I love that we can uh, just share uh, with relationships between pastors and churches, the men's and the women's events that we get to do, strengthening one another, and God willing, planting a lot of churches in the city and around the world. Amen? Uh, that's, that's the outlook we need to have. Um, we'll never drift into that. And so we always have to keep it in front of us. In fact, I think one of the last times I was here, or maybe in front of everyone, I, I jokingly challenged Redeemer City to the next church plant. But I'm going to include you in on that. And so you all better plant before Eastside plants, because uh, we're going to start working on it here pretty soon. Uh, i got a couple things. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. We're uh, enjoying to gather and to meet, and so uh, it's good. Uh, Zach's there this morning. I'm enjoying being here this morning. And the relationships that we have in Madison Multiply just continue uh, to grow and to grow, and we want to send and send and send and really embrace this idea that gospel goodbyes are a part of life this side of heaven. I know you guys have tasted that, and I know that you're in the middle of kind of biting off a big hunk of that as you lovingly send the Tucker family our way here uh, next month. Yes, woo-woo, indeed. Um, But it's hard, and so I'm grateful. uh, And I want to just thank you on behalf of Eastside Church for your Jesus-like generosity. Um, I know that Kinsey and Houston and probably especially Stella, very dear to you guys now, and we are so excited to have them with us. Still here in the gospel, as we're all back to, or in Madison for the gospel, back to back, um, that they would join us as we seek to love Jesus, live like Jesus, and speak of Jesus in our neighborhoods and around the world so others might do the same at Eastside. But I just want to thank you, Vine family, uh, for your sacrifice. And uh, we, we, uh, we are excited. Well, you know, this year's series uh, through the end of summer into September is Learning Evangelism from Jesus. And so taking these vignettes out of the Gospels and unpacking how we see Jesus interacting with people with the good news of the Gospel. It's the call of every Christian life to speak it. Oftentimes, we relate evangelism with kind of a spiritual gift. It is that. Some of us are just naturally wired to do that more than others, just like we're naturally wired to be basketball players or uh, carpenters or whatever else. But evangelism is also the call in all of our lives, isn't it? You remember Jesus as he instructed his disciples in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, saying, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Our part in making disciples is sharing the good news of the gospel with people. We call this evangelism. Learning how to do evangelism from Jesus' evangelistic encounters. We can all learn so much and grow in how we share our faith today in Madison and beyond. And so would you pray with me before we dive in to this morning? God, I thank you just for the fresh glimpse that we have gotten this morning. A preview of heaven as we worship and song together. A preview of your heart for the nations as we hear back of what you are doing abroad. God, we pray that you would continue to to fan our hearts into flame. That we would desire deeply not the comfort of relationship, not the, the comfort of a gathered body, but the good discomfort of sending. And so, God, I pray that that you would just uh, speak to us this morning through your word. We want to see a big picture of you, Jesus. We want to learn at your feet this morning. And so, would you help us, Spirit, open our eyes that we might see and all glorify God together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my wife, Nikki, and I have been married for 15 years this summer. We have five kids. Uh, they're ages 10 to 2. There's a picture of us. Um, Reed has gotten, his face has gotten even bigger. He's a little guy. And he's, it's, uh, it's amazing, actually. We shaved his head for the summer, and it's just this giant head walking around our house. Um, but our, our family loves to be outside, and, and when we can't be outside, and we love to watch programs about nature, uh, like Planet Earth or Blue Planet, and lately, America the Beautiful on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's, it's really great. The landscapes are stunningly beautiful. And the way they capture the storylines playing out in the wild are inspiring and funny. Uh, We love to take the opportunity to just share with our kids how God has created everything that they're seeing and how he is sustaining everything that they're seeing. We just have great conversations about how great God is. And inevitably, in almost every episode, uh, there's a section that centers around this, this universal intersection point of whatever region we're in. And it's the watering hole. The diversity of the animals who come there for the life-sustaining power of the water is incredible. But one common theme is that the strong and the weak don't go down to the water together. The predators and their prey take turns. And without fail, the predators get first dibs. During the wet season, this is not a big deal. But during the dry season, when water is scarce, it could mean life or death for those getting the muddy seconds and thirds. Well, in John 4, verses 1 through 26, we we see the story of a woman coming to the town watering hole to draw water for her and her household. If you want to open your Bibles to John 4, you can follow along. I'm going to kind of jump in and out of the passage as we go through. This woman has no position. She's poor. As we'll find out, because of her past and her present, she's a socio-religious outcast in the city. And because of all of this, she's forced to come for water when the predators won't be there. Her timing is intentional. It's very strategic. She comes during the hottest part of the day. There'll be no one there to prey on her circumstances, to prey on her life choices. No one to speak unkind words that threaten to fully break her thread-thin, life-worn will. It isn't ideal, but the plan has worked pretty well so far. But today... As she approaches, she sees a strange man sitting at the well. Not drawing water, he's just sitting there. Her thoughts race through options only to realize she has only one. 
She must face this man, get her household's water, and get home as quickly as possible. As she approaches, she realizes there's an even bigger problem. He's a Jew. And before we get into this interaction, I just want to jump back and give you some of the backstory to see why this man's nationality uh, matters to this woman. Well, we happen to be in the land of Samaria. And Samaria, uh, making this woman a Samaritan woman. Samaria is this landlocked region within Israel. Think Monona. You know Monona? Okay. Sorry if you're indigenous to Monona. But this landlocked region within Israel, um, which is the land of the Jews, uh, Galilee is to the north, Judea is to the south, and Samaria hasn't always been separate. It probably would have been better if they had been, but at one time they were part of the northern kingdom. And Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom, in fact. But uh, you can read this story in 2 Kings 17, if you want to check that out later. The Assyrians capture the northern kingdom of Israel, and they settle in Samaria. And over time, this creates situations where there's intermarriage, and even sets up for cultural and, more importantly, religious intermingling. And this kind of fostered not, uh, not love, but contempt between the neighboring um, Jewish nations who continued to worship God unadulterated by outside influence. The northern kingdom became a place that worshipped the true God plus false idols. And because of the mixed marriages and corrupt religion, the Jews from the southern kingdom treated the Samaritans like second-class citizens with total disgust. The bitter hatred between these two groups had been growing for centuries before this scene that we have today. And so for as many reasons as the woman has to be suspicious of this Jewish man sitting by the well and not want to interact with him, he has just as many reasons, if not more, to avoid contact with her. But this man is different. He's not a typical Jew. This man is Jesus of Nazareth. But the woman doesn't know that yet. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work through this story together to see what happens when an outcast Sumerian woman meets Jesus, a Jewish man, at a well by the roadside in the middle of the day. This is not one of those kind of meet-cute situations from an old movie. This is like uh, the dead of night on the worst street in the worst part of town of a major city. Do you know what I'm saying? This is not an ideal situation. I want to make one more comment before we get going. This passage comes on the heels of, of another, not as famous, interaction that Jesus has with someone. This interaction depicts Jesus and a high-ranking member of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to understand more about who he is. And Jesus leads him to understand that the salvation that he is offering is from God, and that even Nicodemus, an expert in the law, is spiritually bankrupt and needy. John ends the retelling of the encounter by quoting one of Jesus' most famous teachings. For God so loved the world, I know you can say it with me, that he gave his only son, that whoever, you're reading, so that's cheating. <laughs> whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I want to keep that in the back of your minds as we move forward. Because fresh off the heels of that declaration, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is here. In the wrong place, at the wrong time, interacting with this Samaritan woman. And yet we often are surprised when Jesus interacts with people like this, aren't we? But Jesus didn't say that God so loved the Jews that he gave his only son. 
He said that God so loved the world. That's the scope of his mission. And he wants to show us this morning that his heart longs for everyone everywhere to be soul satisfied and saved in him alone. And so let's work through this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman to see two realities about Jesus that should inform our evangelism. That only Jesus can satisfy and that only Jesus can save. I'm going to date myself a little bit as if my bald head and graying beard doesn't already. But John Mayer wrote a song in 2002 on his album Heavier Things called Something's Missing. The song's full of introspection about this empty feeling that John just can't shake. He runs through things that are true of his life, things that should satisfy him, and yet this nagging feeling that something's missing haunts him. The song's last line paint the desperate nature of the emptiness that he just cannot seem to fill. He goes through this. He says, friends, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. Opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Microphone, check. This one really dates it. Message is waiting on me when I come home, check. And then just as the song starts to fade, Probably one of the most profound lines of the entire song kind of comes in. You can just barely hear it. How come everything I think I need always comes with batteries? What do you think it means? Something's missing in the Samaritan woman's life. And even though the two haven't met, Jesus knows her through and through. He made her. He knows her day in and her day out life. He knows where to find her. He's coming to Samaria at just the right moment to meet her and to change her life. And as she approaches him, he, gives her, he, give, he asks her to give him something to drink. She's shocked that a Jewish man would ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. She points out that Jews don't associate with Samaritans, let alone receive anything from them. And John, the author of this book, makes a little parenthetical comment at the end of verse 9 which has been translated, for Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. That's how bitter this feud is. Oh, Samaritans use that cup? Not touching it. Jesus responds by transitioning the conversation from physical things to spiritual, just like he had done previously with Nicodemus. He tells her that she needs only to ask him, and he'll provide her with living water. She hasn't made the shift with Jesus. She thinks he's still talking about physical water. She wants to know, where where do you get this living water from? She wants some. It would save her some time, certainly. She wouldn't have to make these trips to the well. Maybe she could even sell some on the side, be less dependent on others. That'd be good. Be okay. But Jesus draws her attention to the physical water in front of them and tells her that while the water is temporarily thirst-quenching, It can't cure thirst the way that his water can. She's intrigued. But Jesus cuts to the heart of her search for fulfillment, happiness, and safety by pulling on the thread of her deepest thirst. He tells her to go and get her husband. And this seems odd at first to us following this story, right? But she responds to him, I have no husband. And this is what Jesus is after. Pay attention here. Her honesty allows him to reveal his knowledge of her. Look at the second part of verse 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, 
and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see, Jesus raises the objective evidence that something is missing in her life. And what he knows and she acknowledges is that she hasn't been able to find any water in relationships that would quench her thirst. At least not for very long. Family, because of our sin, each of us is like this woman. We're thirsty for something. Some experience, some person, some position that will satisfy us. Yet everything we turn to leaves us empty. Longing for more. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't make a difference who we are. We can say, oh, of course, she's, she's searching for something. Look at her. She is a mess, right? We often do that with these characters in Scripture. But, but in reality, what is true of her is true of everyone. I mean, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the last chapter. Did, did he think that he needed something from Jesus? Was it he could come and shed some theological light on issues that Jesus was maybe misunderstanding or misteaching? We've seen that interaction with Pharisees before. No. He comes seeking the truth about who Jesus is and what is required for eternal life. For years, he had attempted to satisfy his thirst by keeping rules, studying theology, and helping people, but it was not enough. It could never be enough. Nothing he or the woman at the well did could ever ultimately satisfy their deepest thirsts. The woman asks Jesus, where do you get this living water? Her question is one that each of us asks at some point, I think if we're honest. Where can I find satisfaction, right? Our life is a pursuit of something to satisfy our thirst whether we're a homemaker or a vice president of a big company, a teacher, a nurse, a city worker, an engineer. We all make decisions that we hope will satisfy us over the long term. It's, it's what our entire nation is built on. Find your dream. Pursue it. Accomplish it. Find fulfillment in it. But the answer to the question that's aching inside of every human being is actually in Jesus' initial response in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. We find this living water only by coming to Jesus and asking him for it. Jesus is the only source of satisfaction for our weary souls. Jesus clarifies that this is a universal human problem and not just a problem for this woman who is a, a five-time divorcee currently living with another man that she isn't married to in verses 13 and 14. Would you look at those with me? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water from the well will be thirsty again. Everyone who thinks that another relationship will satisfy will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus is showing her the least satisfying thing in her life to give her hope, not to beat her down. Jesus is not in the shaming business. Just take a moment this week and just, just breeze through the Gospels. Look at all of Jesus' interactions with people. When he confronts them with the truth of their lives, it is not to bring shame, it's to bring hope. Because he's the one with the living water. 
He's the, he's the one that, that can say, the rest of your life can be satisfying. Your deepest thirst can be quenched. That's why he goes on to say, the water that I will give the one who asks me will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The promise of living water is written through the pages of the whole Bible. With it, we find the result of rejecting the living water. In other words, where all of us were before Christ. It's where our entire world is at. Rejecting the idea that there's satisfaction in God. Seeking satisfaction on our own. We see it in the Old Testament when the prophet Jeremiah speaks God's word to the people of Israel in chapter 2, 13. He says, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold any water, endlessly filling them up only to have them empty again and again and again. It's like a boat with a hole in the bottom. You just bail water all day until your arms fall off. It's never going to make a dent. Never going to make a dent. God's chosen people, Israel, had the foundation of living water, the fountain of living water available to them. Their thirst could be quenched. Their soul satisfied by God. And yet what we see as we look at the whole storyline of the Bible is over and over again showing the nature of humanity, turning their backs on God from worse to worse to worse. Turn from all satisfying source of life and strength and attempting to find it somewhere else. Ultimately, they rejected God for themselves, right? For what they could see, for what they could touch, for what they could make. They thought they knew best how to be happy. They wanted to do it their own way. I know I can relate. They sought satisfaction in something other than God. And this really is the essence of sin, isn't it, family? Putting satisfaction in something other than God. Matt Carter and Josh Redberg comment on this saying, we think that sin is primarily about the actions we do and don't do. Sin is when I lie, when I curse, when I steal, when I get angry. But I sin any time I pursue satisfaction in something other than God. That's certainly revealed in lying, cursing, and stealing, but it's also seen in pride and self-reliance and apathy. Anytime we pursue satisfaction in something other than God, we commit idolatry. We're placing that thing on the altar of our hearts and giving ourselves to it, hoping it will do for us what only God can do. And that's why I think we see this woman bring up, well, well where is worship? Where is the place of worship really, Jesus? And he moves quickly to tell her it's actually not a physical place. Soon's coming the time. When all that's going to matter is your heart. And so if you keep wondering about physical places of worship and neglect your own heart bent towards God, when that time comes, you're going to be even worse off than you are right now. And I don't want us to make a mistake here that God's opposed to a pursuit of happiness or satisfaction. He's not. He made us to pursue genuine happiness. God is genuinely happy. He's fully satisfied. His joy and satisfaction is in Himself. And He's offered it to us in Christ. He designed us to find true delight in Him. The imagery of living water is full of promise, reward, His presence. 
Think about this promise from the perspective of the people in Samaria. This is a a desert region. I mean, it's it's easy to kind of think of, of water in our lush, green, Wisconsin summer when like, I don't know what it is these last few days, it's like clouds park themselves right across Madison, right? It's like, look at this, great, it's 65, but it's like 100,000% humidity. Maybe that's just a big guy problem, I don't know. But think about it from the perspective of people living in a desert. A living well that never runs dry? That's like saying winter's going to only last from Thanksgiving to Easter, and then it's gone. That would be hope-giving, right? You have this clean, pure, abundant, flowing water, this wonderful picture of promise and security, of life and well-being. And Jesus clarifies with the Samaritan woman that, that the joy and the satisfaction that this living water can bring can only be found in Him. Apart from Jesus, we find only what C.S. Lewis describes as an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Imagine being at the beach on a hot summer day. This may or may not have happened to me recently. And you realize when you get there, the only thing that you brought with was a case of sparkling water. You're planning to be there all day. The first one is thirst quenching. You go and play in the water with your kids some more, and you come back. Second one, it's okay. You're a little thirsty, but it's okay. Go play in the water, come back. By the third one, you're wondering why you're even trying. Do you know what I'm saying? It can't satisfy. No matter how much you drink, you'll continue to be thirsty. Take a closer look at Jesus' promise to this woman. Her thirst can be quenched if she turns to him and drinks the living water that he is offering. The promise continues. Not only is her thirst quenched, but she will always have access to the water. She'll become able to draw from the living water inside of her. There's no, there's no need to be desperate again. No need to be fearful again. No need to wonder if there will be hope tomorrow again. Family, once we turn to Jesus and discover in Him the fulfilling, satisfying source of spiritual nourishment, we can drink again and again and again, and it never runs out no matter how much we drink. The water I'm describing is, of course, the gospel, isn't it? Jesus died in our place to free us from sin and to bring us into relationship with God through Himself. And when we admit our lack of satisfaction with sin and turn to Jesus, the gospel well is dug and will never run dry. The living water always flows. Even in the driest of desert seasons, it always flows. Only Jesus can satisfy. And the only reason that only Jesus can satisfy is because only Jesus can save So let's look at the second part of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. She knows what Jesus is offering now, but if you'll notice, she hasn't yet asked him for a drink. I recently interacted with my friend's dad at a birthday party. He's talking to me about a recent visit to a new church in their hometown. He and his wife went up to the pastor afterwards, and in his words, I cut right to the chase with him. And I asked him if he believed that Jesus was the only way the only truth, 
the only life, right? That's John 14, 6, just a few chapters ahead of our passage this morning. He said the pastor responded by saying that he believed God's grace was greater. And my friend, we sang something similar, okay? So don't get confused. Follow me on this point, okay? And he said, but, but do you believe that faith in Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God? And the response came back the same. God's grace is greater. That's not the Christian message. It's true, in part. But we're not interested in partially satisfying ourselves, are we? This is what we've just gone through. Partial satisfaction leads to hopelessness. And that's not what Jesus is offering. God's grace is greater than our sin. But you have to finish that sentence. The gospel is that our only hope is through the shed blood of Jesus being received by God as the payment for our sin. The grace that Jesus displays to this woman at the well, the offer of living water, was not enough to save her on its own. Do you see? The satisfaction doesn't save. The satisfaction comes through the saving one. It would be cruel of Jesus to describe the soul-satisfying nature of living water that only He can provide, and then just kind of like up and back away. And so Jesus does the most loving thing that He can do. He focuses her attention on the sin that separates her from God, the source of her thirst. She's an adulteress. She's moved in with a man who's not her husband. Her problem is not the particular sin of immorality, but that she is a sinner. She's broken the covenant with the God of the universe and lives in rebellion against Him. That's her problem. That's all of our problem. Sin plays a fundamental role in the story of the Bible. We're about to launch into a sermon series this fall called The True Story of the Whole World. And we're, we're going through the Bible from start to finish in six, six acts. And from the story's beginning, this true story of the whole world that tells what's really wrong, where we came from, what the remedy is, and where it's all going. And from the beginning, when sin burrowed into God's good creation, the hearts of God's chosen image bearers have been twisted in rebellion against Him. And unless we understand our sin, our identity as rebels, the need for living water doesn't even occur to us. We see it all the time. We see it all the time in our interactions with people. We can look on social media for about five seconds less, and you'll see it. Thomas Watson was a 17th century pastor, and he has a famous quote that says, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And the pastor of the church that Nikki and I attended after we got married and where I was first on staff added a second line that embodies the hope that the gospel offers us. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till Christ be better, sin will not be beat. The gospel without sin is no gospel, family. All around the world, a sinless, condemnation-free message is presented as the Christian message. But grace is meaningless without an awareness of our standing before God. That we are guilty rebels who fully deserve the eternal punishment that is ours. Sin must be recognized for joy to exist. It is a true joy when we realize that we are enemies of God, but are now reconciled to Him. And so Jesus has helped the Samaritan woman to see the lack of joy in what she hopes will satisfy her. 
And he's doing this to help her see her true spiritual poverty before God. Not only is she experiencing the ever-diminishing joy of a life of sin, but she is separated from God and in need of rescue, of deliverance. She needs a Messiah. But she's still trying to figure out who this man is. Is he a prophet? He knows a lot about her. Not sure how you would know what he knows. Or is he just some rabbi passing through, heard about her reputation and wants to cause trouble for her? She sees him as a knowledgeable man, but she has still not seen him for who he is. And I wonder if verse 25 of chapter 4 is is her attempt to end the discussion, kind of create a little exit window, right? I mean, we all do this in conversation. It's like, what can I say that kind of gives me a little bit of space and maybe I can duck out? This is getting uncomfortable. Introverts, you know what I'm saying. I mean, she's got water to get home. The man she lives with is probably going to be wondering where she is at some point in time. So she throws out one last truth when she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. It seems to be her way of saying, I'm not really sure that I buy what you're saying, but I know that the final kind of arbiter of truth on religious matters is this Messiah figure. We both believe in him, Samaritans and Jews alike. We differ a lot on what he's going to look like, but we both believe in this Messiah. Let's just call it good. He'll set the record straight. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story. And she's ready to head back, but she's not ready for Jesus' response. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And this statement is said, and it's still hanging in the air, when the disciples roll up. Remember, they've gone into town to try to figure out food and arrangements and all that kind of stuff. And they come back, and to their surprise, Jesus is talking to this woman. And in their questioning of Jesus, I don't think it's a stretch to say that everything is clicking into place in this woman's brain, in her heart. When Jesus claims to be the Messiah... The promised Christ who would take away the thirst because of sin in the world. I mean, she knows the story of Abraham. She knows that the promise to the nations is going to be more than just the Jews. She knows that when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, he sent a rescuer to lead them out of bondage as a foreshadowing of the ultimate rescuer that he would send to free them from slavery to sin, to free them from thirst. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, at the end of his life, said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And this woman's just met him. She's just met the Messiah, her Savior. And as she makes her way back to town, I think she's aware of her sin, but she's more aware of her Savior. John records her testimony later on in the chapter, outside the scope of our verses. But he said in verse 39, he says that she went around town saying, he told me everything I ever did. When's the last time you led with that in evangelism? This is what Jesus has exposed in my life. He's going to share it with you. It's counterintuitive. She's not necessarily celebrating her forgiveness 
from Jesus, but rather his ability to point out her desperate need of him. That's what she's agreeing with. And she can do that because she has found satisfaction and salvation in Jesus alone. What started as the promise of living water that would never run out has ended with restored relationship that will never, ever be taken away from her. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, this is great for Jesus. You know, kind of knows everything. Can show up this well, talk to this woman. I'm not like that. How can I do this? Well, the good news is you don't have to do this. But we can learn from this. And so as we close this morning, I just want to give some application from this that we can hopefully take into our lives. First, I just want to ask you, have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you believe that He can satisfy your deepest thirst? Or are you digging in dry wells to get water that can never quench your thirst? On this, this program that I mentioned on Disney+, Plus, America the Beautiful, one of the, one of the scenes was of these saltwater crocodiles. And they're, um, they're, they're going through the mud. And what happens is during the dry season, if they don't get to this river in time, the mud dries up around them and entombs them where they stay. And so you have this picture of them just biting and scratching and crawling, trying to dig up enough water to float along so that they can get to where they're going. Family, Jesus invites you to turn from your sin. If, this is, if you've not put your faith in Christ, Jesus invites you this morning. Your thirst can be satisfied forever in Him. Ask Him for a drink of living water that will continuously satisfy you. Ask Him to communicate in your heart all the things you've ever done and how sufficient He is because of His shed blood for you and His resurrection from the dead to pay the debt. Second thing, if your trust is in Jesus this morning, then learning evangelism from Him means that you need His heart for not yet believers. Jesus understood the Father's heart of compassion. He adopted it as His motivation to bring satisfaction and salvation to those trying to find it in the things of this world. Do you remember the scene in Matthew 9? Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd. The Samaritan woman, along with all of us, fits in that category for Jesus. He cared deeply for her, desired her to find satisfaction in God alone. How do you see the messy, sinful people in your life? The not yet believers. Are they obstacles to be avoided? It was traditional for upstanding Jewish teachers like Jesus to bypass Samaria. He had no business being there from a socio-religious standpoint. How do you view them? Do you pray for them? I want you to just take a moment right now and think. Who comes immediately to your mind in this category? There's a reason for that. The same Jesus who knew where and when to meet this woman 
I believe, brings people into our lives that we might share the thirst-quenching hope of salvation in Jesus alone. I would encourage you to ask God to give you His heart. And you'll find it by looking in the Gospels. Earlier I said look through the Gospels, see how Jesus interacts with people. See His heart. I hope that's the, that's the product of this series. That you would, you would not just learn techniques, but that you would learn to have the heart of Christ as you see this world around us seeking to put their trust and their hope in anything and everything else. Third, we need to have Jesus' resolve to help people see the source of their dissatisfaction in life as the sin that separates them from the satisfier. This is the hardest part of evangelism. Our culture does not like it. But if we are genuinely going to model the Father's heart to people, we have to tell them what is separating them. But we do it with God's heart. We don't do it to cause shame. We don't do that to coerce some kind of eternal destination change of plans. We do it so that they can be satisfied and forever have a relationship with their Savior. Those two are crucially connected. Having God's heart and out of that place speaking the truth of what separates us from God. And finally, I think we fixate often on the salvation part of the gospel. Now, hear me fully, please. That's good. Keep doing that. But I don't think that the soul-satisfying nature of our relationship with Jesus and the joy that should be springing from it is as on display. It's an affliction that we have, I think, here in the West. We love the, the integrity of our bootstraps. We check them often, replace them when needed, make sure we can pull up and get out of any situation we're in, but it's a lie. God has saved you, and He saved you for joy. He saved you for joy. Not to ruminate on a sinful past. Preach the whole gospel to yourself, family. Be satisfied in Christ alone, not in what you have overcome in His name. This woman testified to who Jesus was, what He told her, John says that many people from the town encountered Jesus for themselves because he was ready and willing to engage with anyone to share the soul-satisfying salvation that can only come through him. And I want to end by reading verse 42 of this passage. And I, my prayer is that this would be true of many not yet believers in our spheres of influence who encounter the soul-satisfying salvation of Jesus at work in us as we speak this good news of the gospel to them. This is John 4.42. The townspeople said to the woman, it is no longer because of you and what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being with us this morning. It is so clear that you are here. And I pray that as we continue now in worship that you would bless us with a, a, a pure glimpse of your heart for us. That we would see ourselves the way you see us as we celebrate these truths of the gospel. We love you. Thank you so much for sending Christ. Would you continue to satisfy deep thirsts and save as only you can. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.